I want to invite our children to Children's Church, um, just in a more age-appropriate setting to, to learn about God. And so there they go. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful that you have called us to be your people, that you have uh, shepherded us, that you guide us, that you're with us, even as we study now your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand it. And Lord, I offer up prayers on behalf of uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in uh, Palmdale. Pray that you're with Pastor Barcellus this morning as he brings the word to the congregation. Lord, I thank you for the work that that, uh, Rich does with uh, teaching, with writing, with publishing and uh, with his church. Lord, um, he's got quite a full plate, and I know he would confess that it's only because of your grace that he's able to do it. So would you infuse him, would you fill him with uh, a greater measure of your grace and help him to be successful in what he's doing? Lord, we pray for Grace Reformed Baptist that you would lead them to a more permanent facility as they are, um, like we heard this morning in the reading, sojourners uh, traveling from place to place for right now. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would you would get them to a church building that would suit their needs and uh, that you would be uh, active in their midst as they settle into a building where they can uh, serve and, and minister more fully. And Lord, again, I ask that you'd be with us now as we turn to your word. Lord, would you help us to see and to understand? And we ask in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Um, there exists a debate among theologians and and Christian philosophers uh, as to the relationship between church and state. Um, It's called the two-kingdom theory. Is there the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, or is there one? Is there just God's kingdom? I I know I was as surprised as you are right now to learn that there are debates amongst theologians. Who would have thought? You know, you would figure it'd just be harmony and and bliss all the time. But yeah, they have debates. And so there's two different approaches to the idea Uh, The two-kingdom approach says that there's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and these two don't have anything to do with each other, that Christians should not be involved in the political process, not worry about that. That's the kingdom of this world. It's going to go away. It's going to fail, so don't worry about that stuff. And then there's the one-kingdom approach that says, no, it's all under God's sovereignty. We need to be involved in all of that, and we ultimately need to be taking over the world, basically. That's kind of oversimplistic, but that's the idea, is that the gospel should succeed. Um, and so this is the, the raging debate. So if you ever see theologians and philosophers debating about politics, it's probably because they're not sharing that same view as far as the one world or two or one kingdom or two kingdom view. Um, there is a, a, an approach that I think is helpful in understanding it. It's uh, the great African theologian uh, Saint Augustine. Um, he wrote a book called The City of God, and in it he puts forward two cities: the city of man and the city of God. And he's trying to explain how they relate. Now, Augustine wrote the city of God in 410 after the Visigoths had sacked Rome. And the reason he did it, the reason he wrote it is because the aristocracy, the Roman aristocrats, were blaming the Christians. They said, you Christians are too otherworldly. You're too humble. You won't engage in the defense of the the nation state. And if you had, we might have been able to repel these these, uh, Visigoths. So it's all the Christians' fault. And what uh, Augustine did is he wrote to explain that the best citizens are the Christians, that those are the ones who who have the the best in mind. And so he he tells it in this allegory of these two cities, not even an allegory, just using them as an illustration of the two cities. Now, what set Augustine apart from other philosophers of his day was the pagan philosophers, when they looked at history, they saw it as cyclical. What It just kept coming around and coming around. So what happened now would come back and happen again in a different form over and over again. There was no point to history. There was no end in sight. There was nothing going on like that. Augustine, however, considered the scriptures to be the touchstone against which philosophy, including political philosophy, must be measured. He had a high view of scripture. And so his view, as he looked at the world, he had this paradigm that he got from the scriptures. Creation, fall, redemption. All of human history is moving in a trajectory toward a point. God is doing something in history. It was kind of a supernaturalist view that there was something going on. And so he disagreed with the pagan philosophers who saw it as happening over and over again. He saw this as all purposeful. God was doing something. And so the way he plays it out is he looks at the two cities. There are those who are Christ's, 
They have been born again. They're trusting in Jesus Christ. Their destiny is an eternity of bliss with God. And that was called the city of God. And then there's the city of man. Now, his paradigm is creation. God made it all, and it fell. So he looks at the city of man, and he says, how do people get along in this fallen, broken, fractured world, stained with sin? Well, God gives them institutions to help them do that. And one of them is government. And so God institutes government to restrain evil and to promote a common good. That's the best that, that human government should be doing. That's where they should be going. And so that was the, the, the city of man. And he saw ultimately the city of man was destined to fall. It wouldn't last forever. There was going to be a day when, as Revelation says, the, the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. And so the, the city of man was a temporary, it was a necessary, but it was a, a broken system that would eventually lead. So that's why he says, when you look at this, the Christians were actually the ones with the best worldview because they weren't so attached to a system that was broken and, and faulty. Instead, they were allied to a king who would be good and who would rule over these things. So they had the longer view. And so that was his approach was that this, this city of God would ultimately triumph. Not that Christians would take over the world, but that God would eventually rule over all. So that's kind of that picture of this, these two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And so um, in the city of God, this is how um, Augustine kind of explains it. He says, even the heavenly city, therefore, while it's in a state of pilgrimage, avails itself of the peace of the earth. So we're this heavenly city, we're in a pilgrimage, we're in this fallen, broken world, and there's good things that come out of this sometimes. And so we avail ourselves of the peace that, that these institutions create. It is, so far as can be without um, it, that's the church, the, the city of God, so far as it can without injuring faith and godliness, desires and maintains common agreement among men regarding the acquisition of the necessities of life. So as much as is possible, the church is to get along with the city of man for the acquisition of the necessities of life. In other words, we do commerce, we sell and we buy. It's not like we hive off and create our own little compound and do our own thing. We're interacting with this city of man as we're trying to build towards uh, this climax. So there's benefits to that too. As long as it doesn't um, interfere with godliness is, is the key. That's the, the important part. The heavenly city makes this earthly peace bear upon the peace of heaven. Is how he says it. This, this heavenly city, the city of man, or the city of God, makes this peace, this temporary peace. It, it depends on the, the, the coming peace that will, will eventually arrive. For this alone can truly be called and esteemed the peace of the reasonable creatures, consisting as it does in the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. So the, the foundation of that, the basis of this hope of peace is we can only, if we have that true understanding, hope to have peace with God and peace with each other. That's why he says, look, we are the best citizens. The Christians are, is because they're hoping for this peace that will transcend understanding. And so in the end, he says, in its pilgrim state, the heavenly city possesses this peace by faith. And by this faith, faith it lives righteously. For the life of the city is a social life. So what he says in the end is, is the Christians are, are living this life together. It's a social life that we live together in the city of God. Then we're these pilgrims in this city of man, and we're, we're enjoying and fostering and promoting that peace as well. So the picture is these two different groups trying to coexist and live peacefully together. And that's what we find out is going on in... in um, in Genesis chapter 47 is we see God's people living with the city of man, with these kingdoms of people. And so what we're going to see as we look at this is there's three ways that the believers, that the city of God relates to the, the government, the, the existing institutions that God's created. The first is by deference. The second is by blessing. And the third is by service. Now, that all sounds really positive and cheery and rosy, 
It's a little more complicated than it sounds once we get into it. So let's take a look at this. This is, this is as Joseph is leading his family into um, Goshen. This was his plan. Once he found his brothers, once he had figured out where his brothers were and he revealed himself to his brothers, his plan was to get his family out of Canaan into Goshen and then to provide for them because he knew the famine wasn't over yet. There was five more years of famine. And so that's where we're at now. As remember last, the end of last chapter, he primed his brothers. He said, look, you guys, when you meet Pharaoh, say this. Then he goes and he talks to Pharaoh and he says, hey, my family's here. I'd like to settle them in the land of Goshen. And so now we get to the part that, that uh, Steve read for us this morning. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. So Joseph sets up the scenario. They, they couldn't just like pull up to the, the curb of Egypt and stop there and then go in and talk to Pharaoh. They had to get their family settled. They had to get their flocks settled. And then they could come to Pharaoh and, and petition for where can we stay? We'd like to live someplace. But they had to get somewhere. So that's what Joseph says. He's kind of priming the pump because he wants Pharaoh to be thinking Goshen is a good place for them. And so that's, that's what happens. Then... Um, he goes and he takes five men from his brothers. He takes five of his brothers and brings them to Pharaoh. I don't know how many times I've read the Bible. I just, I told Lisa the other day, I was like, I never noticed that. It's an entire verse that I don't remember ever existing. I thought it was all the brothers coming before Pharaoh, but he selected five of them. And what's really fun is to look in the commentaries and people fuss over which five. <laughs> was it all the old ones? Was it all the young ones? Maybe it was one from the old and the young, so they get a span. It's like, if it was necessary, it would be in here. <laughs> it doesn't matter which five. What Joseph did is he selected five of the brothers to present before Pharaoh. And they have practiced. He gave them the words that they need to say. And so they come before Pharaoh with their practice phrases and they say it. Pharaoh asks, what is your occupation? And they tell him that they're shepherds as their fathers were. And so they, they said, we've, we've been in the land of Canaan. The famine is really bad. We have no place to feed our flocks. So we are now resting in Goshen. Would you please let us live there? And Pharaoh doesn't answer him. He answers Joseph. But look at how they speak to him. They never use personal pronouns of themselves. They only refer to themselves as your servants. So what's going on here is this is not political manipulation. This isn't Joseph trying to wrangle something. This is court decor. This is how you behave in court. The decision to settle Joseph's family in Goshen must come from Pharaoh. It must have pharaonic uh, imprint on it so that it isn't contested. This has to be Pharaoh's idea. And so what they're doing is they're very politely, in a courtly manner, asking Pharaoh, can we please stay in Goshen? And they're deferring to his authority. So they, they look to, go, or to uh, Pharaoh and they say, your servants. They put themselves below Pharaoh and they defer to him. So that's how they're referring to themselves. And the first thing then we learn about how we can relate to government is in deference. Is to look at government and say, this is an institution that God has created. He has put the city of man here in order to promote a peace so that the city of God may flourish. And so if we look to the existing governments, the first thing that we can do, the first way to approach it is with an air of deference, knowing that we are pilgrims. We are so sojourns. We're traveling through this. We're not allied to these folks, but we can be respectful. And that's what Joseph has got his brothers to do, is they speak respectfully um, to... Um, to Pharaoh. Now, this is a principle that actually goes throughout the Bible, is to speak respectfully to those in authority. And one of the examples I thought of is, is um, Paul. Paul is in Jerusalem. A rumor gets out that he brought uh, Gentiles into the temple courts, which wasn't true. A riot ensues. And so he gets arrested by the Romans. And the Romans say, this is a Jewish thing. We're going to take you to the Sanhedrin and let them figure it out. So they shuffle him off the next morning to the, the ruling council. And this is what it says in Acts 23. Paul, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. 
And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you on the mouth, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So immediately, Paul is, is unjustly struck for simply saying, hey, I've lived in good conscience. And so he rebukes the person who ordered the striking and then repents for doing it because that's the high priest. The high priest is a ruler, and he quotes Exodus 23, which says you're not allowed to do that. You don't, you don't speak ill of those who are in, in, uh, sovereign over you. But Paul is no pushover here because what he's done is very clever. He's, he's acknowledged his wrong for, for rebuking the high priest by quoting the law, which he just said, you violated because you had him strike me. So in a very politically savvy way, he's reminding them, you just violated the law that I just violated. And so he's trying to set them up to understand this is not how this is supposed to work. But he does it in a respectful manner. He doesn't just quote chapter and verse and say, turn or burn. He's trying to get them to pay attention, trying to get them to see what's going on. There's another case happens just after this. Um, the trial before the Sanhedrin falls apart, Paul instigated it. And so they say, the, the Roman centurion says, man, we got to get him out of here. So they ship him off to Caesarea to be, to be seen before the, uh, the council. And so he goes to the council who's living in, in Caesarea. Later, King Agrippa shows up. And so he was going to make his appeal to King Agrippa. And Agrippa is a quote-unquote king. He's not in the line of David. He is not in any sense the messianic kind of ruling king that Israel is looking for. He is a pretender king. He's been installed by Rome to rule over the Palestinian territories. In a real sense, from a theological perspective, he's a fraud. Yet... This is what Paul says. And so Agrippa and his wife come into the, to the uh, chamber to hear it all decked out, all their royalty, all of their, their riches and their, their fame, and they, they just proceed in so that they may hear this commoner Paul address them. This is the, the attitude they have. And look at how Paul addresses them. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. I, I allow you to speak in my glorious presence. Isn't that kind of him? <laughs> Thank you, Agrippa. So Paul stretched out his hand and, and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And he mounts his defense. Do you see how Paul responded to even a pretender king? He calls him king. I am grateful that you are the one who's going to hear me, King Agrippa, because you understand the Jewish principles. You understand the Jewish notions that are going on. So even in that, Paul is, is looking at a pretender king and saying, let me, let me show due respect, due, due deference to you, and then to make my appeal. So he doesn't just kind of roll over with it. He, he is working the system. He's been working the system all along. As a matter of fact, in the end, he appeals to Caesar, and Agrippa says, man, if he hadn't said that, he could go free. So Paul is working the system to get to Rome so that he may present the gospel to Caesar, as far as he knows. He does it with deference to the existing authority structures in the world. And that is one way that believers can approach this, is we should, as we come to these things, do it respectfully. Even if we don't like the government that's in charge, even if it's a despot, even if it's a, a mean, ugly ruler, even if it's a political party we didn't vote for, we can still show respect and deference to them, knowing that I am not ultimately allied to this group. My allegiance ultimately is to God in heaven. And so while I'm here as an ambassador, I will do the political niceness, and I will show deference to the, the, the city of man where it's appropriate. And that's why in, in Romans 13, Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Boy, that hurts because it's coming up on tax time. Anybody not working on their taxes right now? I mean, I got to do mine. So I don't get to grumble about that. <laughs> Even if I think it's unfair, and I really don't like California tax structure, 
I don't get to do that. I don't get to complain about it. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And do you know who probably was sitting on the throne at the time he wrote this? Nero. Nero took Christians, dunked them in tar, tied them on a stick, and lit them on fire to light his garden. And Paul says, looks at this barbarian in the throne and says, you show respect to this man. It's unconscionable. So as bad as whatever party is in control in this country, it doesn't get that bad. We can surely show respect because we're trying to be good citizens in the midst of this. We want to be good citizens and to, to be sharing in that common peace that Augustine was talking about. So that's that first component of this is that respect. And so what happens is, Pharaoh turns to Joseph and he says, hey, put him in the land of Goshen. Settle him. Put him in the best of the land. And if you have any guys who are really good with, with the flocks, put him in charge of my flocks. That is amazing. That, that should be, I'm sure that Moses wrote that in boldface or something, some other font or something, because that's the promise that the Israelites who he's writing to needed to hear. Remember, they came out of Egypt. They were delivered from Egypt by the plagues, by this miraculous work of God. And the first thing they did was complain and want to go back to the flesh pots back in Egypt. They needed to hear this. They needed to hear, you guys, you didn't come in as a conquered people. You didn't come in because you lost in a war. You're here as slaves because a pharaoh forgot you. But you came here as celebrated guests. Do you remember the last couple of chapters, whenever he's talked about this, Pharaoh was really excited to hear, you've got family, bring them on down. Now, imagine that from the perspective of the Israelites, who've now come out of the land, and they've come out as slaves. They need to hear this message. They need to understand, we are not under Egypt's authority. We are God's people. God brought us into this land. God will bring us back out of this land. We are ultimately allied to him, even though in the midst of it, it's hundreds of years of unfairness. And that's especially important for us because as we struggle to respect whatever government it is that we're operating under, kings, emperors, despots, uh, dictators, presidents, whatever it is, we need to remember that even when they're unfair, even when they're unjust, ultimately God is the one who's gone in with us. He's the one to whom we're allied. He's the one whom we're ultimately responsible to. And so we, this little story about the Pharaoh being so glad to have them settle in the best of the land can easily be forgotten when 400 years later, they're now slaves. They're making bricks without straw. It's easy to forget this story. And this is the story that us as believers, we need to remember as we are being respectful to the authorities that God has established over us. Otherwise, it's impossible. We'll just grumble and complain the whole time. We need to remember that's not who we are in the grand scheme of things. And the city of man will fall someday, and we will stand. So the next thing that happens is Joseph brings in Jacob. It says, Joseph brought in Jacob, and he stood before Pharaoh. So this old man who probably traveled all the way down, sitting on a chair on a cart, he, he helps his father up. He walks him in before Pharaoh, and he's, this 130-year-old man stands before Pharaoh and blessed him. And did you notice he blessed him twice? He blessed him when he walked in, and he blessed him again when he walked out. Now, some of the commentators misunderstand what it means to do a blessing, especially in a Hebrew context, and they think he just walked in and said, hey, y'all. And when he left, he said, see ya. Like it was just some sort of greeting. That is not what a Hebrew blessing is. And as a matter of fact, when we look at jo Jacob and the rest of this story, pretty much all he does is bless. That's about all he's going to be doing. He's going to bless Pharaoh. He's going to bless Manasseh and Ephraim. And then he's going to turn around and bless his own sons. And then he's going to die. So what, what Jacob is doing now is uttering this blessing on Pharaoh. It's huge. From the way the, the, the Hebrews understand it was words had meaning. Words had consequence. So for him to come in and to say a blessing on Pharaoh, it didn't mean that he had special powers, he was going to leverage something on him, but it was saying, this is our intent. This is what we're asking the God of the universe to do for you, Pharaoh. This is what we want for you. And it shows a favor towards him. So Pharaoh asked Jacob, remember he asked the brothers, what do you do for a living? He asked Jacob, how old are you? 
And Jacob's response is, the days of my years of sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of my father and the days of his sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out. So Jacob gives us a very simple answer. He just says, I'm 130. But did you notice the difference between what he said and what the brothers said? He uses a personal pronoun. My sojourn, my life, my father's. He's not being deferential to the Pharaoh as his brothers were. Now he sees himself as greater than. He's speaking to Pharaoh as one who could bless Pharaoh. And in Hebrews, it says the greater, without question, blesses the lesser. So for him to come in and bless Pharaoh, it is a good thing for him to do. It is a, is a wonderful blessing on Pharaoh, but it also is saying, you're not all that. I've attained to 130 years. Pharaoh, I am over you, and so I'm pronouncing my good intentions towards you. But even more than that, what's really surprising is the Egyptian concept of Pharaoh was he was the divine presence on earth. He was the manifestation of Ra, the sun god, in the flesh. And so when Jacob comes in, he didn't bless him by Egyptian gods. He came in and said, Yah have blessing on you, or El, Elohim. He blessed him with the, with the God of his fathers. What he's announcing to Pharaoh here is, Pharaoh, you're not divine. My God is so far over you, my God will bless you because I've asked him to. That's, that's a rebuke that, that jo Jacob is offering to Pharaoh here. He is rebuking him and saying, you don't understand. My God is sovereign over all. And so when I ask my God to bless you, my God will bless you. So in the blessing, and we are a blessing to the nation, as we're blessing, we're also rebuking. So that's what I said. It's much more complicated than it sounds. It sounded like it was all just roses and, and, and rubber duckies and, and sugar candy. But it's not. There are times when we have to very carefully, very delicately rebuke our leaders because they're stepping out of line for the Pharaoh to assume that he was divine has stepped over a boundary. Pharaoh, you have authority over all of the land of Egypt. Everything that goes on in Egypt is under your authority. God has set you there. This is a line you may not cross. You may not equate yourself with divinity. My God who created everything, the heavens and the earth, he will not tolerate rivals. And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And in the blessing itself, it's a, re a theological rebuke to this man. So there are times when our government gets out of line and we are to rebuke them. We need to call them on things where they step over the line and they're doing things they're not allowed to do. And, but we need to do it with respect. So when uh, those videos came out of Planned Parenthood selling baby pieces and, and bartering for prices on, on body parts from aborted fetuses, I wrote a letter to Dianne Feinstein, our representative, and I was very respectful. I didn't, didn't step out of lines at all. I you know, used all the proper terms, and I said, look, even if you support abortion, this is a violation of federal law. You can't let this just slide past. It's your responsibility, even if you're arguing for abortion rights, which I think are abhorrent, even if you're arguing for that, what they're doing has violated federal law. It's your responsibility, Ms. Feinstein, to do something about this. So that was, I'm trying to be in line with what Paul is saying, what we're seeing here in 47, is call our government when they step over that line. It, we're, we are blessed to live in a democracy where we have access to our representatives. Do you think Paul wrote a letter to Caesar and said, hey, dude, you can't make Christians burn incense? It would have never got to him. And then he probably lost his head. For us to be able to rep talk to our representatives, to talk to our, our leaders, is a huge blessing. So how do people who live under a king, King Jesus, in the kingdom of God, operate in a democracy? We don't forget where our ultimate allegiance is. Ultimately, we are God's people. Jacob could come in and bless Pharaoh not by compromising and uttering the name of, of um, uh, Egyptian gods, but by being God's person in the middle of it. And then what does he say? He says, the days of my journeying are 300, 130 years. 
Few and evil have they been. Actually, the NIV translates that few and difficult. And that word for evil could go either way. It doesn't necessarily always mean a moral injustice. It can sometimes just mean bad. So what, uh, what uh, Jacob is saying here is, is, I've been around for 130 years, not nearly enough. And a lot of difficulty has been in my life, is what he's telling him. And some of the commentators said, oh, he's whining again. I was like, I don't see him whining. I see him being humble in the midst of this. Is He's still pointing to God, isn't he? He's still directing the conversation to God. I've only lived 130 years. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, but I'm not anywhere near what my father did and my grandfather. Abraham lived to 175 and had children after 100. I've, I've not attained any of that. So he's not, he's not saying, oh, poor pity me. He's simply saying, I've gone through, I've made it to 130 years, not because I'm so clever and so strong and just robust. And, you know, I eat only natural foods. I, I shop at Whole Foods. I only get organics. And, you know, if I just take the right supplements, you too could make it to 130 years. That's absolutely not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you know, 130 years is nothing. It's chicken scratch. And it's been hard and difficult. But who did I just invoke? I just invoked Yahweh. I just invoked Elohim, the God of the universe. And he's the one who's gotten me to 130. And, and I'm sojourning in this life. And my fathers went even further. So he's, he's still, in this instance, he's still pointing to God. Calvin was right on this. The other commentators were saying he's whining. John Calvin was very explicit. No, he was not whining. He was still pointing to God. He was still shuffling the discussion towards God. And then the last thing you notice here is he says, he refers to his life as a sojourn, as traveling. He, he never really settled anywhere, did he? He was, he was in Canaan, in the promised land. He went up to Haran and he hung out there for a while as he got some family and picked up some uh, riches. Then he came back into the promised land and he traveled around there for a while. And then finally he comes down and he gets ready to cross into the border. And now he's sojourning in Egypt. And this is it. This is what he's going to be doing. He's, he knows that his life is temporary. That's that picture of the city of God. In our pilgrimage, as we're sojourning, as we're wandering through this world, it ain't going to be perfect. It's still filled with sinners. It's not going to wind up hitting the mark every single time. And so we, we don't consider this the ultimate destination. We know that we're going further. Stephen Hawking just died this week. It's sad to see him go. The man was a genius. He, he was stuck in a wheelchair. He couldn't speak. And so what he said is he had a lot of time to think about things. And so he's the one who came up with this. I, I'm going to nerd out for a second. So if you're not into science, you can tune out. I'll call you back when we're ready. He's thinking about black holes. A black hole is a, a star that's clapped in and on itself. The gravity is so strong that at a certain point, you get close enough and not even light can escape from it. That's called the event horizon. And, and so what does Stephen, King, or Stephen Hawking do? He's sitting in his wheelchair. He can't talk. It takes him 10 minutes to write a sentence. So he's thinking about black holes. And he's, he's concentrating on that event horizon. Where is it that light can't escape? And what happens at that event horizon? That's the most interesting thing, because anything inside it, we can't know. But at that event horizon, we can figure it out. And he starts thinking about it. He gets down to atoms. What if an atom wanders into the event horizon and part of it gets pulled off into the black hole and part of it escapes because it's just at the event horizon? Well, every time an atom splits, there's a burst of radiation. So in the end, he writes, you know what? Black holes aren't black. They radiate. And I, I look at that and I go, this dude is smart. OK, come on back. Science lesson's over. Um, I'll reel my, pull my nerd back in and we'll, we'll work on this. So Stephen Hawking is a very smart man. He's thought about a lot of things. What's tragic is, in the end, he even, toward the end of his life, he, well, he knew he had a death sentence. He was supposed to live three years. He lived to 70. So he had a long life facing death. And when they asked him, he said, I consider the human brain a computer. And when the components break down, that's it. It turns off. He didn't believe in anything that came after it. He was stuck in this life. He couldn't see beyond this life. He considered God as a fallacy and thought, well, that's a word that people use for reason. They call it a God. And, and I'm thinking, 
Stephen, you grew up in England. Have you ever heard of the Trinity? You want to tell me that, that God is reason? The Trinity is hard to understand. But when, he, when, you're, when you're in that kind of a position and you're stuck, you think this is it? You can't transcend? You can't see anything past this life? That's devastating. The, the best you can get is this. So for us, as we're dwelling in the city of God, we're looking just like Jacob. At, at, we're looking at it as we're sojourners. We're traveling through this. And so in um, Acts chapter 11, um, the author in Acts 11 is talking primarily about a Abraham at this point. But he, he actually, I think, makes this statement right in the middle of it because he says, these all died in faith. And he's not talking about only the people before Abraham. He's talking about his whole chapter. So I think this is kind of a, a bombshell in the middle of his presentation, talking about all these people who lived in faith. And this is how he sums it up. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they could go back. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. So Jacob tells Pharaoh, look, I'm only 130 years old. I probably don't have much more to live. Life's been rough on me. But you know what? I'm not looking for things here. I'm, I'm traveling through this. I'm going to do my best. But in the end, I know that God has prepared a city for me. God has prepared a place for me to go. And so this is the real power behind our blessing the nations. That's the real power behind us being a blessing to the, the country that we live in, the city that we live in, is to know ultimately this ain't it. If this is it, then we're going to freak out and have to have everything perfect because this is, we don't go past this. If we know ultimately that we wind up with God in the eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, then we can labor here with freedom and with joy, knowing that our God wins. That's what it means to be a sojourner. And then finally, I want to point out, as he leaves, there's another blessing, so I get to talk about blessings again. As he leaves, he blesses him one more time. This is a fulfillment and a reminder of God's covenant promises. God has said to Abraham a number of times, uh, Genesis 12, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what just happened. Jacob just walked in and blessed the nations. He blessed Pharaoh, the leader of the, of the world, the known world at this point. Um, Genesis 18, the Lord said, I shall, hide, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham surely will become a great nation and a mighty people, and the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. And Jacob walked in and blessed Pharaoh. And then he does the same thing. He says the same thing again in, in Genesis 22. I surely will bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, what we saw last week is 70 people going into Egypt. What do we say came out? 600,000 men who were fit for war, plus their families, plus their children, plus a mixed multitude. There were so, uh, sojourners who were with them. We're talking over a million people. Did God just fulfill that covenant promise? I will make you a great nation. You will be a blessing to the nations. Through you will a blessing come to the nations. And Jacob, the old man, leaning on his stick, goes, God bless you, Pharaoh. It's God's covenant promises. Moses is reminding Israel, this is what it meant for you to be in Egypt. He's reminding us, this is what it means for you to be in this world. As we transition, as we wander through, this is what we're waiting for. And so now the last section is um, what I titled service. Um, after Joseph gets what he wanted, which was having his family settled in Goshen, does Joseph just go, uh, okay, boss, hey, here's my retirement paperwork. I'm out of here. Now he continues to serve. He is in a position of authority in Egypt, and he continues to serve. And what does he do? He's, he does just exactly what he's been doing his whole life. He continues to flourish. He continues to succeed. He brings blessing to Pharaoh. So the first thing is, he, they, the people have run out of food. He's sold. Now they run out of money. 
And so they come to him and they say, well, we don't have anything else. Buy our livestock. And so Joseph said, give me your livestock and I'll give you food in exchange for the livestock since your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. So now Pharaoh owns all the livestock in the land because the people are starving. This is, this is a shrewd businessman. He is promoting his boss's interests. Then the next thing that happens is they come to him again and they say, um, you know, we don't have any livestock. We don't have any food. What good is any of this? Buy us and our land because we're going we're gonna to die. And then what? We've got land to be buried in. It's no good for us. And so Joseph bought the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So now Pharaoh owns the livestock and the land and the people. And in verse 22, Moses throws this little thing in. And you got to think of this from the perspective of Israel leaving Egypt. Verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. He's explaining to Israel, you know how Pharaoh owns everything except for where the priests live? This is why, because of Joseph. Joseph did this. That's why this is the case. And so he goes on again in verse 25, and he's, uh, they sell themselves to, to Pharaoh. And Joseph made it the statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should take the fifth of the land uh, of, uh, of the priests alone. He did not take of Pharaoh's. So what he's saying is, you know, the tax structure that, that you guys saw, that was Joseph. Do you see what your, your uh, kinsmen did in this country? He established what you have done is you have affected the nation of Egypt for years to come. It's been 400 years, and this, these rules are still in place. So in his serving, he's having an influence in the nation. This is why I get a little twitchy when you get into the two kingdoms debate, and, and it gets so polarized where it's have nothing to do with government or immerse yourself in government. I, I don't think it's either one. I think it's much more complicated than that. It's be involved in government, but don't put your hope in government. Be involved in government, but understand they're going to mess it up. But you can have a positive influence. It's not polishing brass on the Titanic as it's going down. We're, we're hoping for having a positive, lasting influence on this country. And hey, have we arrived yet? Is America all that and a bag of donuts? We got a lot of work to do, you guys. There is a whole bunch of stuff really messed up in this country. Continue to do that. Continue to work. That's what it means to serve in our context is to be a good, responsible citizen. Petition your representatives. Vote. Express your opinion to them. Call them to the righteousness that you know Jesus Christ wants to see in the world. A way to, to help you think about it is think about if Jesus ruled right now, how would this thing be handled? That's a good rule of thumb, and then work towards that end. Aim for that. Call our representatives. Call the, the, the state, the city, to that end. What would Jesus have done? How would he rule in this instance? What is his desire? You have that because he's given you the scriptures. And, and we see this happen in other places, too. Thinking of Daniel, right? Daniel is called into the pagan king's service. And what does he say? Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Did he ask the chief of the eunuchs to not involve him in politics? Did he ask the chief of the eunuchs to just release him because he's a Jew and he really doesn't want to be involved in this stuff? No, he goes into the king's service, but he maintains his identity as a Jew. And he says, I'm not going to eat these defiled foods but let me serve the king. And winds up being serving three kings we see in the book of Daniel. He had a wonderful, successful career. And toward the end of his life, he's getting stuff ready for Israel to return to their promised land. That's what it means to be in service in the middle of a fallen, broken society. Understanding the city of man's not gonna be perfect. But let's call it towards improvement. Let's call it towards where it needs to be going. Let's call it to the kingdom of Christ. That's where we want it to ultimately go. So then what's the result of that? Okay, so we're, we're in the nation. We show deference to those in leadership. We bless them, including rebuking them, and we serve. What do we expect to happen? What are we looking for to happen? In the end of the chapter, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Jacob just told Pharaoh, dude, I'm 130. I'm going to go any second now. 17 years later, he dies. You never know the day when you're over. You just don't know when it's coming. Um, Stephen Hawking, he, had, he was given three years to live, lived a lot longer, decades longer. It, that's in God's hands. It's ultimately in God's control. But Israel settled in the land of Egypt. They came into Goshen. They multiplied. Their flocks multiplied. They didn't starve to death in Canaan. God brought them into the land of Goshen and blessed them. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me be buried with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Jacob Is, is Jacob convinced the end of his life is the end of it all? He is looking forward to something more. So he says, don't bury me here. Bury me with my fathers. I want to be with my family when the resurrection comes. When, when, we, when we rise again in newness of life, I want my whole clan to be together. Don't bury me here. Bury me there. And he says, put your hand under my thigh. That was just a way, a personal, intimate touch to say, I promise. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. And that's why it's so intimate and so personal, so close, that he would put his hand under his thigh. Is, is he saying, I want you to promise to me that you'll do this. And so Joseph promises. He says, swear to me, and he swore. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob's not dead yet. We just got a glimpse ahead. We know he's going to die, but he's got much more to do before he goes. So it's kind of cool how Moses wrote this looking ahead, gives us the, the tip, but he says it's not over yet. We've still got some more things to do. The result of this is God's covenant promise. He told Abraham, you're going to be in a land that's not your own, and you're going to serve them, but in 400 years, I'm going to bring you out, and I'll judge them for doing that to you. So he moves his covenant people into the land of Goshen, and you remember um, Moses dropped that little line last week, and shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So the Hisok kingdom is ruling in the northern part, up in the delta where all the food is, all the water and all the, the nutrients rush down Nile before they dump into the Mediterranean. That's where they are in this beautiful land. And all the Egyptians around them don't like them. They're an abomination. What God has done is he's moved his people into the midst of this nation in a fashion that would keep them isolated that would keep them separated so they don't blend into the Egyptians and just disappear. Now, wasn't that a danger in Canaan? Didn't we see that happen with Judah? He goes off and he gets wives and has children and all this. And then we find out last week, oh, by the way, the same thing happened with Reuben. He got a Canaanite wife. The covenant family was in danger of disappearing. And so God moves them into a place where they're unique, they're different. Now, does that mean that they were isolated? They were their own little tribe. They had nothing to do with the nation around them. No, we already saw that. Joseph's laws are still in effect when Moses is around 400 years later. So they're there. They maintain their own unique identity. Before they're put into slavery, they, make, they maintain their own unique identity. They are Hebrews, and they're identified. They know they're Hebrews. And yet, they're a blessing to the nation around them. And that, I think, is a picture of what God is doing with us. He's called us to be in the midst of the nations and to carry the gospel out to them, to be a blessing to those nations. We're carrying Abraham's promise on through. And instead of going to Jerusalem, we're going to the ends of the world. Instead of going to Goshen, we're going to the ends of the world. Instead of being isolated, we're being spread out. And, and that's, the, that's the promise of this. As we engage with the government, as we engage with those in authority over us, we spread out and the gospel spreads. Now, this just occurred to me this morning, and this may fall flat on its face, but I still thought it was kind of cool, so we'll give it a shot. When we were singing about moving mountains, Jesus, you can move the mountains. I thought about Jesus telling his disciples, if your faith is big enough, you can say to this mountain, be moved into the sea and it'll go. And what occurred to me is that never happened. Jesus himself never told a mountain, get up and jump in the ocean. His disciples never even tried it. Why did they do that? What, what was that supposed to mean? And what I thought about was, and like I said, this is 
fresh thought. This, these are fresh sliced ideas coming right off the press. What if he's talking about, look, if you tell the mountain that Jerusalem is on to get up and jump into the middle of the nations, it's going to go. The, the sea represents the chaos, the turmoil of the nations. That's why in Revelation it says, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and it says there is no sea. Now, does that mean in the new heavens and the new earth there's no water? No, I think what it's talking about is this, this picture of the turmoil of the nations, the terror of the nations. And what, God is, what Jesus is telling him is, look, you, you guys, I'm sending you out as disciples. My command to you is go, make disciples of all the nations. So if you tell this mountain, if you tell Jerusalem, get up and go into the mountain, into the ocean, it's going to go. If you tell Israel to get up and go amongst the nations, it's going to go. If you tell the church to go to the ends of the earth, they're going to go. So I, that's my theory anyway. Um, I hope that works. <laughs> I, I, now, you know, later in the week, I'll repent of, of heresy for some reason on that. But for right now, I'm going with it. So that's the result of all of this, is God carries out his covenant purposes. In its, in its ugly, distorted, sin-stained world, God is still moving his purposes along. He's still heading towards those covenant promises, and it's nothing can, t- t- can derail it. So again, let me just quote Augustine's last statement that I quoted earlier. In its pilgrim state, the heavenly city possesses this peace by faith, and by this faith it lives righteously, for the life of the city is a social life. So as we're pilgrims in this world, we live socially with each other. We live socially with our neighbors, with those around us. And yet we're still this heavenly city in the midst of a fallen and broken world. Let's pray. Lord, I first want to confess that I might be uttering heresy there or at least error and ask your forgiveness. But Lord, I think it's a pretty uh, fair comparison to see us being sent to the nations that uh, you did indeed tell that mountain to move, and it moved. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, having us in the Antelope Valley, your church, your people, the city of God in the Antelope Valley, move into the nations would be less work than casting a mountain into the ocean. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, indwelling, infusing your people, powering them for service, equipping them for the good works you prepared from the foundation of the world, Lord, I pray that we would naturally move into the world and to bring the gospel. Lord, may we be the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And Lord, I pray for the Antelope Valley. Lord, I pray that we would see the entire Antelope Valley take at least one step closer to godliness. Lord, that we would see the Antelope Valley take one step, if not more, toward justice, toward righteousness, toward peace. And Lord, would you use your church in the Antelope Valley, all of us together, all of us individually, Use us to accomplish your purposes here. We ask in Christ's name for his glory and for the benefit of his church. Amen.